The legendary broadcaster Mark Zumoff would say, we're on the seesaw, ladies and gentlemen. The Philadelphia Phillies, uh, the, the subject of this podcast, Phillies Therapy, hosted by me, Paul Boyer, along with the Athletics, Matt Gill, uh, are going back and forth again. They're toying with our emotions again. They're doing this thing that they've done fairly frequently over the last couple of years where they look a little sluggish. You're wondering, hey. What's it going to take for you to snap out of it? Huh? What do you need? Let's go. Come on. Chop, chop. They do that. Namely winning. What was it? Seven of eight games. Eight of 10. Look good. Get over 500. Think. Yeah. All right. All right. That's a little more like it. Cobweb's gone. Fine. And then last week happens. Whatever that was. We'll try and pretend Los Angeles doesn't exist for the balance of this season. And the Phillies are back under 500. They won on Sunday, a nice team win on Sunday to cap off a series loss to the visiting Boston Red Sox. Taiwan Walker looked good. That was nice to see. But the Phillies are 16 and 19 after getting back within three and a half games in the middle of the Houston series. Now they're eight back again because Atlanta just keeps winning. Blah, blah, blah. We'll bring in the athletics, Matt Gelb. Matt, uh... We've talked about this, what feels like uh, 50% of our time together, 50% of our episodes, where we wonder what the following week is going to bring (laughs) in terms of mood, in terms of demeanor. (laughs) And the hopes were a little bit higher last time we talked when the Phillies were back over 500 and looking a little better. And then the Dodgers series happened. Uh Look, there's only there's only so many ways to say that the pitching needs to be better, but I think we'll start things off today by saying well, the pitching needs to be better. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean it could it could always be worse, right? Like you could be wow. uh you could be the Cardinals, you could have signed a 31-year-old catcher to an 80 88 million dollar deal and moved him off catcher. I I don't understand into the, into the contract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. Phillies, Phillies pitching needs to be better, and and, and I, I I wrote about this in the Athletic for for Monday, kind of trying to cap you know the last few days, and um, you don't want it to be like a you don't want to simplify things because it's it is a, it is a complicated game, and like you know there's a lot that goes into this, and it's hard, but mm-hmm. um, it it I think for this team it truly is like it starts with the rotation. I mean, like we there's a couple of things we can kind of assume about the Phillies now at this point. I mean, like. Yeah, we think they're going to we think they're going to score. I mean, they're only eighth in runs in the National League right now, but they're fifth in OPS. And, you know, Harper is getting back into form and, and the lineup is sort of uh, falling into place at this point. And, yeah, um, you know, I think it's fine to assume and expect that they're going to score. And I think it's also fine to assume and expect that, you know, the better pitchers in their bullpen are going to be solid for them. Uh, we've seen ups and downs for, for just about all those guys. If you're talking about Jose Alvarado, Gregory Soto, Serenity Dominguez, Craig Kimbrell, and mm-hmm. now Matt Strom is back there. Uh, he got the save Sunday. Um, but that group as a whole, like you feel pretty good if you're handing the ball to them on a regular basis uh, with leads uh, late in games. I think it all comes back to this, to the rotation. Like we saw, I mean, like it, it, it's, 
and I, and talking to guys around this team, like it's been really interesting to hear their perspective about how different like the flow of games are now with the clock. Like it is, it is different. I mean, there there are players who think that momentum has more of an impact on a baseball game than it ever has, and hmm. that's good and bad momentum. Yeah. And so often we've seen it with the Phillies, like bad momentum. It's always been like one really, really bad inning for a starter. Just about every time the Phillies lose, like it's because there was one bad inning from one of their starting pitchers. Yep. And it and it just seems to happen really fast out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden the starter is back to, you know, getting quick outs and getting through maybe five or six innings, but still having that one bad inning that ends up deciding the game. Yeah. And Taiwan Walker on Sunday, you know, had his best start so far as a Philly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bar was pretty low because his first six starts had not been good at all. <laughs> no. uh, you know, he threw a lot of a lot of splitters. He attacked hitters. He only had, I think, four three ball counts to the 19 guys he faced. He did not walk a batter. Um, and it was refreshing because he got through innings quickly. The pace was good. The Phillies scored a few runs. They tacked on a few runs like it, it just felt normal. And that's because the starting pitcher, I think, uh, controlled the pace and controlled the flow of the game. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, thinking back to our Walker conversation last week, I, I remember looking at the numbers and being like, oh man, this this splitter spamming thing is just, it's not quite working. They need to make an adjustment. And their response was, yeah, we'll make an adjustment. We'll do it more. And it, it just overwhelmingly went through the storm. And is just, I guess, going to throw 60% splitters now or something like that. If it works, it works. And that's great. I I sometimes have a hard time wrapping my head around pitchers who can spam a single pitch so often and get away with it. You know, you, th- you think of the most famous example of that, at least in the modern game, it's probably Mariano Rivera. He just threw cutter, 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 cutter all the time, all the time. And nobody could do anything about it. You knew it was coming. I think he had slight variations on the cutter with its movement, which you probably in today's game, they'd call one of those a sweeper or something, but he could get away with it with basically one pitch. And so when I look at Walker, just to take another quick moment on him before we talk about the broader pitching landscape and what's going on here. Yes, the pitch is really good. Like you look at it, it, it's it's an aesthetically pleasing pitch, the way it breaks on TV. Obviously, it gets a lot of swing and miss. It gets bad contact when, you know, folks are hitting it. It just makes me wonder if somebody can really tune up for a pitch like that, you know, study the video. Maybe if they've had an experience with him in the box before, they know what it looks like coming at him. They can feel better prepared for it, right? I'm just I'm wondering how you can get away with a pitch mix like that. Just I'll say forcing it, but just like forcing the issue of the splitter being a dominant pitch like that. And then leaning on the fastball for 90% of your outing. Like how, how did, how did they get away with that? Why do they think that's going to work? I don't know if they think it's going to work. I mean, it's interesting because I, <laughs> okay. asked, so not I crazy. asked, I asked, you know, like I asked JT Romuto about it after the game. Cause I, I was curious. I mean, like you mentioned Rivera, I mean, he could get away with it because he pitched one inning at a time. Yeah. Right. Yep. I mean, like in mm-hmm. first starter to go through lineup uh, three times with, you know, one and a half pitches, essentially. Uh, it's hard to do. And like I asked JT about it and he's like, I, he, he says, I don't know if it's going to work. He's like, just not because of I don't think Walker's splitter is good, but because like on a principle, like on a, you know, on just a fundamental basis, like I don't think that 
a starter can, can only throw one pitch, you know, mm-hmm. unless it's like an elite fastball, he said. And like we're seeing Spencer Strider, for example, sort of redefine yeah. how we look at um, pitch mixes for starters. But Strider is really in, in his own world, I think, right now. I mean, he, he is, um, you know, at that level where he can get away with with really one or two pitches and that's all he throws. Right, right. Um, you know, I think JT made some good observations. Like when I was asking him, he's like, you saw his splitter be so effective because he threw it for a strike early in counts and then he could throw it out of the zone later in counts to get a mm-hmm. swing and miss. So mm-hmm. there were different different things he could do with that splitter. And then, you know, I think what they did a good job of was sort of anticipating the counts where an opposing hitter might think the splitter is coming and then coming, you know, kind of up and in with the four seamer and, and throwing off the hitter that way um, kind of using almost like a tunneling effect, I suppose with the four seamer and the splitter. And right. um, You know, we talked about that last uh, podcast and I think uh, it was interesting because it was, it was a lineup of of, of seven left-handed hitters. So so top seven hitters this year for the Red Sox were left-handed, which I don't think I've ever seen uh, in a a major league lineup before, but um, and, and, and I think the caveat that a lot of people gave yesterday was that like the splitter plan that he had yesterday can work against certain teams. And so they thought it was a good plan for this Red Sox lineup. And, and I do think like you're going to see him throw the splitter a lot. He may not get past, you know, 50% every start. He may get close though. You know, and I think he, he, he got to a point where he's like, I'm getting beat on my third, my fourth, my fifth best pitches. And I don't want to get beat that way. Mm. And if they end up beating me on the splitter at some point, then we make adjustments. But for now, like, Let's go with this. And I'm all right with that. I'll buy that for now. And, and even Walker says, I mean, like he, he didn't even need to hide it. He's like, they know the splitter is going to come more than half right. the time or half the time. But like, I'm confident enough in that pitch. that I feel like I can get by with it. And even if they make contact, it's not always going to be good contact. And that's a better mentality to have, I think, than he had before, because before he was yeah. clearly nibbling. He was trying to just do a little too much. He was trying to avoid contact, period. and that's just not a successful game plan. You, you know, the the confidence thread for some of these guys, I, I like how I like how strong that that tie is becoming. You know, we just went through this with Alvarado, whose confidence was a big issue in, in trying to get him right early last year. He comes back imbued with the confidence that your stuff is fantastic. Throw your best pitches. Just let it ride. I mean, it, it's slightly different for him. Again, the one, the one inning thing and also his stuff is freakish. But it's the same sort of concept where you have a guy who's got this excellent pitch and some other workable stuff. He's clearly got a, a, a bag of tricks, even if all of his pitches aren't necessarily, you know, top tier, where all you got to do is give the guy the the belief that he can throw it for strikes or throw it for bad contact when he needs to, where he needs to. Will he I mean, always can do I, it? Can no. I read you? No, can I? Let me, let me give you a Walker quote here. Sure. On this topic. He literally said, this is what he said. Okay. Today, I really just wanted to have JT set up in the middle and just throw the ball right down the middle and be aggressive. Well, well, well. Make them put the ball in play. (laughs) Well, well, well. Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, I mean, it it worked this time. It won't work every time, but that's why I'm glad you said that they have contingencies of a sort in place. Like, there will be a mix here. It won't always be leaning so heavily on the splitter. Maybe if they come across another lineup that throws five, six plus left-handed hitters out there, it'll work again. I don't know. We won't really know that until we get there. But in any case, it was really nice to see, um, especially after we were just talking about how how brutal his struggles were. 
I think relative to the rest of the league, Walker's season is still subpar, and that's fine. I think we can all agree on that. No, that's no okay. Question. He's yeah. he's still working on things, and he'll hopefully keep trending in the right direction. But that larger landscape has changed early on through the first month or so of the season. And you call this out in your story. That's what I'm picking this up on. Starters across the league, across the entire league, have an ERA over four and a half, which you point out is more than six tenths of a run higher than last April. That is a big jump. Is a huge and, jump. and it's April. You know, it's not June. It's not July. Uh, so who knows what the summer months are going to give? I, I think, Matt, we, we have an interesting situation on our hands with this huge league shift because it's going to require some more adjustment on our end, right, to really kind of reconceptualize what it means to, A, be an average starter now with this new world, and B, what a good season looks like, because a good season might not necessarily have as high a bar as it had previously. No, I mean, Zach Wheeler is a 4-2-6 right now in 38 innings, and his ERA plus is 101. He's 1% better than league average right now with a 4.26. Four and a quarter, yeah. And so I've actually been thinking about this a lot, Paul, because I've talked to a bunch of people about it, just like bouncing these ideas off because, yeah, I mean, there's been a fundamental change in how we view pitching in the sport now. And I keep coming back to this. Like, I think for one, and, and I don't want to, and this is going to sound like, you know, it's going to sound like kind of old man at club. I mean, like pitchers for one, I think starting pitchers are, are, are going to have to go back to pitching. Uh-huh. And, and that just means like, you know, being craftier, being smarter, mm-hmm. um, being conservative at times, perhaps like, you know, dialing back your stuff. I mean, I look at a starting pitcher now, as in 2023 as almost more of like a game manager than anything like you are trying to get through a lineup three times and you're trying to avoid that those big momentum shifts you're trying to avoid those big innings that happen quicker and more often than they have ever before i think at least in recent memory Mm -hmm. um And that's how you have to take your approach. Like it's no longer, I mean, like, you know, those quote unquote stuff starters, right. That sort of were on the rise last year's guys who kind of maybe are five and dive or guys who have two or two and a half pitches who are just going to out stuff you who have stuff that's just so good Mm -hmm. that they're going to blow you, blow you away. Um, I think those guys are going to be harder to find and slash harder for them to succeed in the clock era. And, And, I'm not using, I don't think anyone's using the clock as an excuse. I mean, it has really changed how this game is played. I mean, it's like really changed, especially how it's pitched. Uh, because, oh man, I don't, the cumulative effects are real. The cumulative yeah. effects when you're throwing 100 pitches on an afternoon or on a night and they are now condensed. And also your time on the bench, you know, between innings is also condensed now. Mm-hmm. Because your team is at the plate generally faster, you know, than before. Time for conservation is much less, and you're packing in more action and more strain on your body in a briefer time. And it is harder for these guys. It is, and so it's forced. It's going to force them to rethink how they pitch. And Aaron Nola is going through this right now. Like I'm watching him, literally go through it on the mound and like between starts. Like he's trying to figure it out. And mm. 
I, I look at starting pitchers now as game managers. Is that like, and then I'm not trying to like, they're still going to be the Garrett Coles of the world and the Spencer Strars of the world. Like those guys are elite elite and they're still going to be able to do the things that they do. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like offense is way up and it's not going to go down. No. Nope. Like, and this is what they wanted. And that's good. Like there's more action. I think that's good. It's good for the sport. But the consequences here are that pitching has fundamentally changed and it's going to take some of these guys a little bit to figure it out. And I think it's going to take us a while to figure out, you know, what what is acceptable, what is good, what is above average, you know, what is average? And like, <laughs> I mean, I don't really know. Like, do you? No, no, of course not. And I think the figures we've even seen after April are going to look different by the time, you know, even June rolls around, especially July, you would think, and August. I don't know that we're going to. I don't know that it's going to be league-wide moon ball or that we're going to be, you know, course field all the time necessarily, but this is an early indication that things could get interesting. You know, it the adjustment I think that's been most prevalent for me in watching this staff and and trying to figure out, you know, whose problems are real and whose are just a matter of, you know, needing a little bit of tinkering. You know, I think of Aaron Nola right now who seems like he's fighting it almost like almost on a nightly basis when he takes the mound. But lately over the last few starts, I've been reeling that back in and really just thinking of it in that timer context in that, as you put it, game management context, because we've become familiar with Aaron Nola as a guy usually sits about what? 93, 94 with the fastball. Um, all of his other stuff usually plays off that and he, he uses it well. And he's been throwing closer to 90, 91 most of his starts so far this year and you look at that and you're like well is that a bit of a is that a bit of a hangover from the playoffs is he hurt is he hiding something and more and more i'm beginning to think of it as that tactical sort of adjustment that you were talking about this is a guy who as it's been pointed out relied pretty heavily on taking a little bit of extra time between pitches between batters gathering his thoughts or just recovering a bit of energy, whatever it was, he was more of a, more of a relaxed pace guy. And now that's changed. Now that's gone. And maybe that lower recovery period between pitches, between innings is playing into the thought process of, well, I do have to scale back my stuff a little bit or else I'm going to flame out in the fourth inning every night. Um, That's just me hypothesizing, but you're probably going to see adjustments like that across this team, across the Phillies and across the league as you know, time goes on um will it always be successful no i i I don't know what kind of end of season lines we're going to see from some of these guys how far out of whack they're going to be from career norms you know is nola going to finish with an era closer to five than than the threes i I don't know but it's clear that they're all working on different things you know this is so much of an adjustment that there are things both visible and hidden that we're just going to kind of have to figure out as viewers, as fans, as the season goes on. So starting pitchers had a four, five, five ERA in April, right? Mm-hmm. That was the 10th highest figure on record for an April. Wow. I mean, it was Hello. the highest since 2006. I mean, these are the years and actually I don't <laughs> even count. I wouldn't even count 1995 is on here. So it's the ninth highest figure ever. That's, these that's are the years strategy, that there yeah. were, these were the years that there were higher figures. And what do these years have in common? Okay. We are at 1994, 1998, 1999, 96, 2000, 2001, 2004, 2006. I mean, like, you know, 
those years generally were known for a certain thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the steroid era did skew some of those numbers. And like oh, right yeah. now we are at steroid era esque starting pitcher performance. That's wild. That's crazy. That, that, and, and I feel like I'm shouting from a mountaintop here. All nobody's been listening to me, but like, I think everyone has acknowledged that like the game is different and offense is up, but like, I don't think we've properly, uh, recognized you know where this is headed no no at the very least it's become murkier it feels like there's more uncertainty about what's coming in the summer you know and and it's interesting in looking at a little bit across the league there are some surprising things happening and you wonder if some guys are feeling this adjustment more than others or if it's caused some kind of injury that we don't know about you know you and i before we were recording you brought up max scherzer who's off to an incredibly rough start. This is uncharacteristic for him. And you wonder if, if something is really wrong there, or if this is just a, a, a matter of a 15 year major league veteran having to adjust to a new landscape of the game. It, we're going to have this debate, I think for a number of players as this season goes on and the seasons to follow because it's going to change things. And it's not only going to change the landscape of, you know, what is average what is good contained within a season or even a month or a week, it's going to have later on probably an effect on the way we talk about guys who are on the hall of fame bubble. Even, you know, if we have guys who come in and in the middle of their careers, they have a huge negative effect from having to change up the way they, they go about their in-game routine or something like that. And it takes them longer to recover than somebody else. And they have two seasons of a five ERA while they were, you know, entering their age 27 season. I, I don't know. I'm just making up a person here. Like that's going to, that's going to have a big impact on careers. So I, I think you're right to, you're not alarmist. I don't, I don't see you as alarmist. I don't, I don't think there's anything over dramatic about this. I think you're right to think about and point out that we're entering uncharted territory here with pitching and hitting alike. And this is not to, you know, minimize the ineffectiveness that we've seen from the Phillies rotation because it has to be better. Mm. I think that's yes. like, there's no question about it. I think what I'm trying to get at is that it, it, it they're not that far away from being like, uh, from being good enough. Right. Yeah. And because of, again, the makeup of the team, because we think the lineup is going to be solid because we think the bullpen is in decent shape and, you know, too often we've seen them just, just not be able to get it to those, you know, back end relievers. And we've seen, you know, too much Connor Brogdon, too much uh, Andrew Bellotti early in the season, a lot of Luis Ortiz, you know, a lot, a lot of these like middle relievers who you're just kind of like, eh, you know, like they're, they're, they're okay fillers, but like, um, you know, you feel like if you can get, and once we saw them, like we, we, you know, that great stretch, the best stretch that the Phillies have been on, you know, it was consistent starting pitching, getting it to those late end guys. And everyone felt like they fell into place mm-hmm. and you could see it kind of coming together. And, you know, it wasn't a prolonged enough stretch for the Phillies, obviously, like they had a, a rough last week and a lot of it was on the rotation. So I, I think what I'm getting at is that we have to adjust our expectations for pitching in, in, in the sport this season. Um, that said, the Phillies need to be the Phillies need to be better. I think it's clear they need to be better in the rotation. But as we saw Sunday, I mean, it it's it's not like too far away. It's not like it's impossible for them to be better. And obviously, Ranger Suarez is coming back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's going to be back this weekend at Coors Field, you know, either Friday or Saturday. I think he's going to pitch for the Phillies. And, um, 
I, I think we kind of like maybe forgot about how much Ranger meant to them last year. Maybe not forgot, but maybe it was easy to overlook it because we're like right in the moment. You're looking at what they have right now. You know, Ranger Suarez made 29 starts to them last year and threw 155 innings and had an ERA plus of 109. Like he was 9% better than league average. And like if you get 9% better than league average this year, like uh, he, he doesn't have to be as good of a pitcher as he was last year to be 9% right. better than league average. And so that you know, 9% better of league average, 155 innings of that, that it would be huge for the Phillies right now. Like they really, really miss that. And they really, really need that. And that's not to say that Rangers going to come back and be the guy who was last year. But again, because the league has changed, like I almost look at Ranger and think of him as like, he might be like, like you're the, um, like the quintessential, like pitch clock era pitcher. Like he oh, has yeah. always been a guy who like, uh, worked at his pace and it was a quick pace and always seemed like a guy who wasn't very rattled often. And we saw him have some issues last year with command and he, you know, that he, he had some innings that kind of got away from him, but more often than not, he's a guy who works fast and who seems to be um, uh, undeterred by, you know, bad things. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see what he looks like in the pitch clock era. And uh, I think he's going to be, be a really big boost to the Phillies. They, they really need him, obviously. And now on the flip side of this whole run scoring environment, you need hitters who can attack this new breed of pitching, this new pitching strategy, landscape, whatever you want to call it. And the Phillies, as we pointed out a few minutes ago, uh, have done a decent job with their lineup. You know, they're in the upper half of the NL in a lot of categories, and, and they've been fine. Uh, there's usually not been too much to complain about. A lot of the angst has come from pitching either giving up leads or giving up way too many runs, even for a good lineup to come back from on a given night. Uh, but things are, things are looking okay. I, I think with the lineup there, there've been some struggles lately. You look over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, Alec Bohm has struggled a bit. Bryson Stott has struggled a bit. Brandon Marsh has come back to earth. There, there's just been this sort of ebb and flow, you know, usual in season baseball things. But one thing that changed up, especially uh, of note on Sunday's game, this past Sunday's game, was a lineup change. Maybe a little overdue for some of you, whatever the case. Rob Thompson finally changed things up a little bit. Bryson Stott led off and Kyle Schwarber was batting fifth. Turner Harper Castellanos in the middle is kind of unchanged. Then Real Muto, Alec Bohm at first, Brandon Marsh, Edmundo Sosa rounded out that particular lineup. Schwarber had a big day. He had a long home run. He had an RBI single, which, by the way, I looked this up when it happened. That RBI single that Schorber had before he homered, I think it was only his 17th plate appearance with multiple runners on out of 120 to that point. Really? Yeah. I mean, look, some of that is what happens when you're a leadoff hitter, but also like what? But he figures to see if <laughs> a few more of those batting fifth behind uh, two spots behind Harper and Castellanos. Uh, Matt, the, the lineup change thing can often become a focal point for fans, maybe even for players alike, when things seem like they're just a little bit off, whether with a player or two or just the whole lineup. In the Phillies case, it was only a couple of players, particularly Kyle Schwarber. We'll just focus on him right now because after Sunday, uh, two hit effort, he's still hitting under 190 on the season. W what do we make of lineup changes? Like what? When a change is actually made, Rob Thompson mixes things up. He talks to his players. He talks to the guys, get them on the same page. 
do you get the feeling that this is something that will probably stick for a couple of days, a week, two weeks? Do you think they're going to try and let this ride a little bit longer? Like what, what, what sense are you getting around the clubhouse about why it was time for the lineup change now and what it might look like in the near future? Well, I mean, they decided it was time because Schwarber was like one for his last 30 and, you know, entering Sunday. And I, I don't know how long it'll stick because every time they make a change, you know, Rob Thompson's like, I think I'm going to stick with this. And then he doesn't stick with it. So <laughs> I, I'll say this, like he, he, he really, he did stick with his lineup last year for uh, on a pretty consistent basis, you know, barring injury because, yeah. and, and Thompson did reiterate this again Sunday morning is that his players like it when he is consistent and he likes it when he is consistent because that just, it removes any sort of doubt and there's a certain expectation and there's just less wondering about, you know, where I am. And, you know, there's different pieces that are like fitting into this lineup and they're still getting to know each other. And and like, yeah, where a player bats does matter to said player. It does. Mm -hmm. Like some guys will say it doesn't often guys. What they want to say is that like, they want to know where they're batting sort of on a consistent basis because it does they want to know who they're batting in front of and they want to know who they're batting behind and like that actually does it does play into a guy's you know how he approaches and at bat or how he thinks about things and you know there's been studies over the years of course that show that you know lineup construction is you know rather relevant in terms of a, of a of a team's outcome over a season you know i mean there's there's there are very there are very few instances where uh a certain lineup is costing a team you know, yeah. to the point where they're, where they're, where it's, where it's making a difference in the standings. Right. Mm-hmm, I mean, do mm-hmm. I have that right? Is that generally? I, yeah, that's accepted? roughly about right. That's how I go into it thinking. Yeah. Um, now that said, like it does, you know, it matters in making your players feel comfortable. You come back to that comfort, that comfort and confidence thing. Like the reason why Kyle Schroer was batting leadoff is because he's told Rob Thompson, he's like, he likes it up there and he like, he's comfortable up there. And the Phillies are comfortable. We're are, and we're comfortable with him batting leadoff because, uh, they like his approach. I mean, if you'll notice, he's like one of the few guys in this team who actually like draws a walk, which, yeah. you know, is kind of an issue right now for the Phillies. I mean, they have uh, the third best batting average in, in the league, but they have the eighth best on base percentage. And it has been glaring at times that they, um, you know, they're very reliant on stringing together hits, you know, to, to for rallies to score runs. And that's um, a formula that might work better in the no shift era. Um, but uh, it's still a difficult formula. I mean, you'd, you'd like to draw some walks and hit some home runs and, you know, they've hit a few more home runs of late, but Schwarber uh, is one of the few guys who's drawn walks on a consistent basis. I mean, he's got a 307 on base with a 188 batting average, which is, yeah. you know, imagine if he's hitting 250. <laughs> so, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> but uh, uh, I see why they did it. And let's, let's, you know, let's, let's, recognize what you know bryson stott like hasn't been great for the last you know two-ish weeks i mean like he's he's still getting some of those two strike hits and he's usually getting you know like a a single a night generally um but that's about it and uh you know he hasn't drawn a lot of walks either and i think he's been upset about how he's expanded the strike zone at times he swung at some pitches that he probably should not have swung at he he knows that he recognizes it i think he's upset about it and i don't know i mean like I do think that there, I, I, I would like to see the Phillies run a little more. And I asked Rob Thompson about this uh, yesterday morning. Um, you know, they're near the bottom in the NL and stolen they bases. Are. They're near the bottom yep. in the league in stolen bases at major leagues, period. And uh, I was like, is that a philosophy thing or is that a personnel thing? And he says, well, it's not a philosophy thing. He's like, I, I want us to run. Like, 
but it, it's about picking your spots. Like we, we will run sure. on certain pitchers at certain times, right? They, they get, you know, that's generally how they decide whether they're going to steal bases. It's less about situational and more about uh, the pitcher's time to the plate and the catcher and the catcher's arm. Generally, that's how they decide whether they're going to run or not. And I guess they haven't had um, the optimal uh, scenarios for that so far this season, but uh, I, I do think with Stott and Turner at the top, instead of Schwarber, it gives you more opportunities to swipe a bag at the top. Um Turner's only got four steals so far this year, and that that jibes with what I expected. Man, I did not think he was going to run a lot. Um, you know, he might get thirty steals, thirty five steals, but he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna run a lot. Like he's just he um, he prefers to play one hundred and sixty games rather than get uh, more bags that might you know end up uh, risking injury or something like that. So uh, I think there's an opportunity for them to run a little more uh, with Stott and Turner at the top. I think Schwarber and and batting fifth is a is a better run production uh, spot in the lineup traditionally. You mentioned that stat about him, you know, the plate appearances with runners on base, and it's weird because the bottom of the lineup had been doing you know okay, right? So Schwarber would usually get up with those guys on base, but I don't know. It's it's still like a lineup. I feel like that's like finding itself, right? I mean, it, it's yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's going to be a good lineup, but I think it's still finding itself. I, I think that's fair. You know, the running thing is interesting to me. Uh, I thought they would have been running a little bit more by this point, too. But also, you know, they're not exactly stuffed with speedsters. I think one of the more interesting things, at least that I've noticed, and this is just probably one of those noisy early season type things. But I just I get lost in baseball reference wormholes often, multiple times a day. I'm just um, I'm deep in the like forbidden sections of of splits pages and bouncing all over. I, I look at some really esoteric stuff but but in this case i'm looking at team base running stats not just stolen bases uh, although that is part of it but i'm looking at first to thirds which is a helpful thing that baseball reference tracks and a really just weird thing is and i'll just read this off the table here so everybody understands what i'm talking about i'm looking at the national league the phillies are are tied for the second most uh, occurrences of a runner being on uh, first base and a single being hit. It's happened 72 times for them. All right. Just the so instances. Look, yes. 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 Straight up instances. Okay. okay. And so you look okay, at that okay, and you probably, right you're probably thinking like, all right, wh- wh- what's a, what's a good rate of going first to third. It's probably somewhere in the 33% of the time, maybe a little bit more kind of range right now. The national league average is hovering around that 33%. The Phillies have only gone first to third on a single 18 times out of those 72. So that's a, that's a quarter. Yeah, that's a quarter. That's straight up 25%. The other 53 times they've made it to second base. And then there's one out on the bases on one of those. So they've advanced guys into more quality scoring positions less often than a lot of the other national league teams. You know, I'm just looking at this, and and this is one really specific example. I get that. But it sticks out for a team that we're talking so much like, well, their average is so high, but they're not scoring that many runs. And things look good, but they're not getting them at the right time. That's something that could be playing a part. I don't know. Again, you expect some more of this really weird early season stuff to level out as time goes on. But there are just so many strange things being tossed in here. And I'm hoping hoping that this lineup change is what kickstarts that 
coincidentally, probably. But what I'm thinking is that there is, to me, watching this team, some level of, I'll call it discomfort. I think that's maybe a little harsh, but it does seem like guys are just trying to find their footing. You know, they got Alec Bone got off to such a great start. Brandon Marsh got off to such a great start. Stott, too. They've all kind of simultaneously slumped over the last couple of weeks. All the while, there hasn't been that consistent pickup from other guys in the lineup. You know, Castellanos has had probably what we could say the most consistent start to the year offensively. And, and I guess even defensively, too. Crazy as that is to say. Schwarber hasn't had it. Turner hasn't had it. Uh, JT is, hasn't really had it. Um, there hasn't been that that pickup, right? Now you have Harper back. He strikes out three times in his first game and has only struck out twice in the four games since. He looks great. He's putting together great at bats. No batting gloves. Love the Moises Salou throwback look. Fantastic. Um, but there, there's something just preventing, whether it's cosmic forces or otherwise, something just preventing this team, I think, from fully clicking. You know, I, I haven't dug too far into this, so I'm just going to theorize, and this is purely speculation coming out of my mouth right now. But we have noticed, I have noticed, over the past couple of years with guys and their first season joining the Phillies, you can think of Harper, who had a slightly down year for him his first year of 2019. Schwarber got off to a slow start. Castellanos got off to a slow start. Turner was off to a slow start for them. And at least in two of those cases, in Harper and Castellanos' cases, we heard later on about there was, you know, some real life stuff that was happening. You know, Harper's going to have a kid. Uh, Castellanos had had trouble, you know, really getting into, you know, just, just feeling like he was fitting in, getting comfortable. I don't want to say there's a systemic issue or anything like that, but it does seem like there's something with guys who come to come to the Phillies lately and just need a little time to warm up or like fully get into it again, not systemic. I just think it's bad timing. Um, so hopefully that's about to end is what I'm getting at. And I think Turner's day, you know, his, his weekend is a good, hopefully good indication of that because look, the, I, I, I said it multiple times with Castellano slumping, even as you know, last season dragged on. And I did it before this season even started. Some guys, you just, you feel better about thinking they're going to snap out of it and look better. And Castellanos has looked better. There are things he, that could still hold him back for sure, but he's looked better. And I think that's coming for Turner. I really do. The more of a, the more of a, a history a guy has, the better you feel about something like that. It's why so many of us were so, you know, hesitant to call Stott's breakout legit. Uh, even though there were some things that were better Marsh's breakout, even though there were some signs of improvement, just because there wasn't that long-term demonstrated history. My hope is that, when Turner really gets going that everything else around them just starts falling into place. And maybe they pick up the pitching staff when they have an off night a little more often. Yeah. I mean, we haven't seen it all click at once yet, mm -mm. even in that stretch where they were playing well. Um, you wouldn't say that they were, you know, that it was all totally clicking. And, you know, I guess that's like the biggest takeaway from 35 games in is that they're 16 and 19. Uh, it should be better. It could be worse. It's been, you know, the quality of play and like overall, it's about what you expect. The record is what you would expect. That's just kind of what they are right now. They're three games under. It's kind of been good and bad, more bad than good. And uh, signs, though, that 
you know, it's not too far off. It doesn't feel too far off. It doesn't feel no. like no. this is a team that uh, is a hopeless or B lost. Like it's nope. not, it's not that, um, that said it needs to be better. And like, I, there's two numbers, Paul, and that's all what I'll leave you on that. I, that really jumped out to me and I use them in my story today is that mm-hmm. I feel like starting pitchers have like allowed the fourth lowest average exit velocity in baseball, which mm-hmm. tells you that they're, they're on a whole getting weak, you know, weaker contact uh, than most rotations in baseball which would then lead you to believe that um, they should be performing better than they are. They also have the second worst strand rate uh, in baseball. Only the A's who aren't a major league baseball team have their rotation has a worst, has a worse rate of stranding runners on base. So that tells you that the rotation is due for a little bit of positive regression in that they are not giving up hard contact on a consistent basis and that they are not currently stranding, you know, the amount of runners that they, should strand even on an average rate. So I don't know, like it kind of makes me think that they're due for a little positive regression. Um, that said, like needs more, need to throw more strikes and like Taiwan Walker uh, laid it all out there for us on Sunday, you know, more strikes, make the other team swing, make them put it in play, live with it. If it falls in, but don't, don't give them bases. Don't give them free passes. Don't give them, um, you know, favorable counts to hit in. You know, it's funny, um, you talking about that reminded me that I had a tab open for another one of those weird things, this time on the pitching side, that just sticks out to me. Pitches thrown right down the middle. Typically bad, right? You don't really want to do that. You do want to throw strikes, but unless it's the 3-0 count and your chances of getting away with it are a bit higher, you tend to want to avoid the meatballs. The Phillies have thrown the, let me just do a quick count here, the two, four, six, seventh most pitches directly down the middle of the plate so far in the major leagues this really? year. This is according to baseball yeah. spot. Yeah. The number I reads can't 300. Wait to hear these stats. Yeah. The number reads 395. Um entering Monday. Uh, a lot of American League teams, in fact, exclusively American League teams, are ahead of them. The slugging percentage they have allowed on those pitches, which again, you would expect some damage because it's right down the middle of the plate. Uh, that is that is the fifth highest mark in baseball at 686. League average is currently sitting at 604. So they're in the upper third of pitches actually thrown right down the middle, which is you know not great and probably needs to be adjusted. The only teams that are ahead of them, though, Marlins, not very good. White Sox off to a really bad start. Arizona, pretty good, but buoyed by their offense mostly. Washington, really bad. So all of that, of course, coming with a, an average exit velocity. That's the lowest in the league on the pitches that are right down the middle at 92 miles an hour. All of that is to say, and that's a bunch of numbers to say that doesn't make a lot of sense. They're getting tattooed for their mistakes again. Yes, but more so than one could typically expect. It's another point in the regression argument. I just like throwing out this really weird stuff. It's this, this is what fascinates me. This is what passes the time for me. So I hope that was interesting to you because I just, I can't get over this stuff anyway. Well, we see. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, this time next week we'll have, you know, seen five more games cause they're off uh-huh. Monday. They're off Thursday, but right. um, you know, it starts again. Like, you know, they talk about this, like, you know, this, the, how this sport is very much uh, affected by momentum more than ever. And like, it really, it starts with Nolan Wheeler and like they, um, they skipped Strom's spot, you know, so they get Nolan Wheeler on Tuesday and Wednesday against the Blue Jays at home. And, 
starts with those guys. Like, I mean, you just need, you know, you're looking for, for better. You're just looking for better. You're looking for uh, performances that keep uh, the Phillies in games. And it doesn't have to be overwhelming. It doesn't have to be always elite. Just manage the game. Matt, tomorrow night, dollar dog night. Are you excited to see Again, which outfielder is going to hit? <laughs> which outfielder is going to get hit in the head with a wrapped hot dog? That's the last one. And uh, oh, I'll say this man. like I, I, really quick on a side, like they, they had a 44,669, I think was the number uh, in Sunday's uh, crowd. They sold a ton of standing room tickets. The, the attendance right. numbers at Citizens Bank Park have been uh, like awesome. insane. I mean, yeah. I, I even, you know, at the Sixers game, uh, at kind of played concurrently uh, only a little bit because the Phillies and Red Sox played in two hours and 14 minutes on Sunday. Uh, the, the attendance numbers have been um, really kind of off the charts. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, and I think for the Phillies sake, you know, they, you know, play decent baseball and like stay, you know, stay above water here. And like the, the crowds in the summertime are going to be, um, they're going to be pretty good. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> It's funny. You're saying last dollar dog night. You mean of the season, but I'm thinking like, yes, if if people keep throwing the wrapped hot dogs oh, at oh, players, yeah. like it'll be the last one ever. Well, don't do weren't... that. Knock it off. <laughs> yeah. Don't it. throw the hot dogs. You can, don't... you can throw them at each other. You can throw them at yeah, each other. Okay, which is fine. what happened in the first, that happened right. in the first dollar dog night. People were just throwing them at each other. Yeah, that's fine. Whatever. Who doesn't like a good food fight? Just how, don't throw how them on the How bored table. are you that's people? All. My God. Yeah. The games are over 45 no, minutes right. quicker than they used to be. Get, get over it. Yeah. <laughs> no, go. this is a lot. They front load the dollar dog nights, and this this created a lot of controversy last year. But uh, I, I don't know. The way they are now with the tenants, like they don't need to, uh, they don't need to add dollar dog nights. People are just going to come out, you know, without the dollar dogs. It, it is the downside to the team being good and drawing you know, more interest is you, you lose a little bit of dollar dog night. You lose a bit of, you know, ballpark pass type things. Those things sort of take a backseat until the next time you suck, <laughs> which is fine. You take, you make that trade. Um, but it, it, it kind of hurts a little bit to see things like that go away. Anyway, last dollar dog night of the season, quick two gamer with the Toronto blue Jays, Tuesday, Wednesday for travel day, heading out West again with a little home stint in between. Three at Colorado, three at San Francisco. Oh, my God. We're probably going to record, I would think, before that San Francisco series. But, Matt, this is my this is my annual breakdown point where I just lose my mind because something dumb always happens. Because the Phillies and, are going to play Gabe Kapler? Uh, no, not even that. It's it's that. The, it, okay. It just... It's it's a house of horrors for me. I I have I have some kind of weird reaction to Cody every Ross. Game. You have Cody Ross. Uh, you know, it, you know what I have. Cody Ross. You know what I have. It's the likes of like, like Ryan Terrio and Angel Pagan and you know the little, sometimes little in stature, but not literally like the little role players that some of these Giants teams had. Cody Ross. Wasn't there an NLCS game against Cole Hamels at or at uh in San Francisco? He had a big hit. I'm thinking of the home runs off of how I'm thinking of like a double down, double down the line against Hamels in game. Oof, I don't know, three or four of the NLCS in 2010. Well, I, I anyway, guess it's, I it's called Oracle Park now. Oracle way. Park. Yes, thank you. I will hold my nose and go look that back up, which I've gleefully suppressed until this moment and will now reopen those wounds. Um, 
it will be a real therapy session because I just, I can't stand Giants games. I cannot stand Giants games. They, they infuriate me. I get so mad. So get interested, get, get excited for that episode next week, everybody, where I'm going to have an existential crisis leading up to the three games in San Francisco. All right. Enough of that. (laughs) Phillies wrap up their homestand against Toronto and then head out to play a couple games in Coors Field. Ranger Suarez is coming back. Bryce Harper looks great. Tywin Walker had a nice start yesterday. Turner's had a few hits, you know, sprinkled in more frequently. Things are starting to come around. Schwarber snapped out of it. Positive signs. Thumbs up. I know there was a big losing streak in the middle of that week. Who cares? Things are looking better. We're recording on the heels of a win. <laughs> Sixers are tied in their series. We're feeling good. We'll see what happens next week. <laughs> Go read Matt's stuff this on is, the Athletic. This is all because it's, it's all relative. The Mets are under 500 right now, too. And the Marlins have won 11 one-run games, and that's why oh, they're ahead God. of the Mets and the Phillies. So That's <laughs> just... April baseball is dumb. I've come to this conclusion. Uh, that, that's Matt. Go read his stuff. It's amazing as always. Uh, Theathletic.com. Uh, I am Paul. <laughs> we'll catch you next week for my meltdown. Meltdown.